Hey, welcome to Cross Creek On Demand. We are so glad you are here. My name is John. I'm the lead pastor. We created Cross Creek to be a church for people who don't normally go to church. And so we've designed our Sunday environment, including our online environment, to be a safe place where people can discover God's love for them. We would love to connect with you when you are ready. Go ahead and scroll down and you can click ask a question, ask for prayer. Maybe you could find out how you could get here on a Sunday evening to join us live. But we would love just to be a part of your journey in discovering God's love. When you're ready, we would love to see you in person. Until then, why don't you go ahead and click subscribe so you can be updated on Cross Creek's most recent messages. Thanks for joining us. Good evening. Hey, good to see you guys. My name's John. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are just so glad that you are here for um, part two of a series that we're calling Accepted. And if you are new here, we want to give you a gift. Uh, maybe you came in a little bit later and you didn't see our, uh, our welcome video that we made just for you. So if you missed that, maybe come next week a little bit earlier and you'll see that. But um, we want to give you a gift. And the best way we can think of giving you a gift is actually uh, the welcome card in the seat in front of you. It says welcome. I think it's, it's blue. Is it blue? It's red. The other one's blue. We'll get it. We'll get it figured out. So the red card is yours if you are new. Red means new. Red means please do fill this out at some point during this evening, and then after the service, go to the lobby and give that card to the person at the info table. You'll see a big sign that says info, and we will give you a free gift if you can get us that card. If you're watching online, we have no free gift for you yet. We're working on that. But thank you for watching online, and you can let us know that you watched by emailing us at... Uh, your, what is, what is it? Your Cross Creek at, no. What is it, Monica? Info. Info at yourcrosscreek.com. We've only been doing this for two years. I'll get it, I'll get it by 2020, which is coming up. Isn't that weird? We should have flying cars by now. Anyway, so we are in a series called Accepted, and I'm glad you guys are accepting me because Sometimes we just need acceptance, right? But the reason we're doing a series called Acceptance is, you know, the main idea that we're looking at is this, that people who are nothing like Jesus loved being around Jesus. People who are nothing like him. Uh, you know, you might believe Jesus was a good, a good, holy, religious teacher. I believe he was more. I believe he proved that he was more. I believe that he proved he was God. But people who are nothing like the religious people of the time, or maybe the religious people of this time, loved being around Jesus. And one thing that we're going to see next week, we're not there this week, but we're going to see next week is that Jesus loved being around them too. But why did these people who were nothing like Jesus, who, you know, were shunned by all the religious people at their time, why do they love being around Jesus? Because he accepted them. He accepted them. He saw them as people. The definition we gave for accepted last week when we started this series was accepted. No matter how different we are, I see you as a person worthy of value and honor. No matter how different we are, we might disagree on things, and that's okay. I still see you as a person, your own individual person, who is worthy of value and honor. And that's how Jesus saw people. That's how Jesus saw everyone, as somebody worthy of value and honor. And so Cross Creek is kind of trying to, to show that to the world. We're trying to be a church for people who don't normally go to church, to show people that they are accepted by God and they are accepted by people who love God. And so last week we looked at how the curious, people who are curious about Jesus, curious about God, are accepted. How, you know, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to say, hey, there's something about you. I, I want to know more. What, it's okay not to have all the answers and that Jesus accepts the curious. But there's one group of people I think that have a hard time accepting that Jesus accepts them. I think they also have a really hard time accepting that any church would accept them. And those are the skeptics. I think people who are skeptical, people who might even label themselves, if they're willing to have a label, as skeptic, often don't feel accepted by God, especially accepted by church people. And so when I say skeptic tonight, here's the definition we're going to be working with. Skeptic, a person inclined to question or doubt accepted opinions. A person inclined to question or doubt accepted opinions. Or as I would say, people willing to think for themselves. Right? They don't want to be spoon-fed 
facts. They don't want to be spoon-fed beliefs. They want to think for themselves. They want to figure it out. Now, skeptics and the church, the church in general, like maybe Christendom, if you'll call it that, don't have a great history together. If you think of, let's go back to, um, you know, the Middle Ages in Europe. Skeptics weren't really accepted by the church, right? In fact, if you, if you questioned their beliefs on just about anything, or you questioned their beliefs on, like, science even, there are some serious consequences for you. A lot of people experienced those consequences. People who said, you know what? I think that the New Testament writings, the, story, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, I think those should be in the language that people are speaking. Like, I think, like William Tyndale said, I think we should translate the New Testament scriptures into English. Kill them! We didn't say you could do that, and they killed him for that. Isn't that crazy? So people who tended to question the norm, they didn't get along with the church. And maybe that's your experience. Maybe that's why, you know, this is your first time checking out a church. A friend said, hey, no, this one will be safe. Or maybe you're watching online and you're like, you know, I, I want to check out a church, but I've had a bad experience. Maybe that was your experience, is that you had some questions. Maybe you even had some doubts about faith, about Jesus, about God, about Christianity. And they said, you can't ask that. Maybe they didn't say that, but they made you feel that way. How, you don't know that yet? Or, oh, you're doubting. No, you just need to believe harder. Oh, you don't, you don't want to just fit the pattern? You don't want to fit the, the cookie-cutter mold of what this church says a Christian is? Well, you either need to conform or you need to leave. That's, an, that's a common experience. It's, it's so sad. And so people, you know, they say, stop asking so many questions. Here's the, when, when somebody, maybe it's been you, when somebody has, been, has shut you down like that, I think often that comes from, from someone who is scared of their own skepticism. Someone who hasn't been willing to dig a little bit deeper. They've had questions, but they're too scared to maybe ask them. And so your question, which they haven't maybe found an answer for yet, scares them. And so they kind of push that on you. And so it's no wonder that free-thinking skeptics tend to feel like they're not accepted by the church. Maybe not accepted by God. In fact, I, I saw this statistic today, actually. 60, and I think this is one of the reasons why 64% of kids who kind of grow, who are exposed to Christianity, kind of grow up in a Christian home, grow up, grow up going to church, 64% by the time they're 18, totally abandon it, totally leave it. Now, if you're, you know, a hardcore skeptic, you're like, good. If, if you have kids and you want them to kind of, and you, and you love Jesus and you know Jesus and you want them to love Jesus, that number should scare you. And it's going up. 64%. By the time they're 18, leave the church. I think one of the big reasons, they feel like they can't ask questions. And then they, they get out of their home church, they get out of their home, they go explore the world for themselves. They're encouraged to think for themselves. And for the first time, they're able to ask a question. And there's someone there to answer it who might have a different answer than maybe what actually is the truth. Something that we're going to see tonight. And so the thing is, skepticism is healthy. Skepticism is good. It's how you discover anything about our world, about ourselves. Skepticism really is how we discover anything about God. And think about it. Aren't we all skeptics in some way? Don't we all question certain beliefs? Like personally me, I'll, I'll just put myself on the spot here. I am very skeptical that there is a God named Zeus. I don't know, I mean, this from this, the stuff I've seen on the internet, I don't think there's a God named Zeus. I'm very skeptical about that. Maybe you are too. I'm very skeptical when my, my three-year-old daughter says she's washed her hands after dinner. <laughs> I'm not going to call her a liar, but she's not telling the truth. I'm very skeptical when I see the peanut butter all over her face, and she wants to give me a kiss. And I think when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to God, when it comes to Christianity, we all have some skepticism somewhere in there. We all have some questions. We're like, ah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, you know, Jesus was a good teacher and he was cool and all, but God, like he's God, how does that work? Like who is he praying to? How does that, how does that even work? 
I'm a little skeptical. Okay, so he, maybe, you know, he was great and he, he died for our sins, but resurrected from the, I'm, that doesn't happen. I'm skeptical. Or maybe, you know, that all works for you. That makes sense in your framework, in, your, in the way you see the world. But maybe it's that, you know, you know the, they keep talking about faith and, and trust and how, you know, that's, that's all that God wants. And he, he, he wants us just to, to love each other the way he loved us and to trust him. That, ah, that's not what I was told. That's not what I've, I, I, there's more I need to do. I, maybe I'm skeptical that he accepts me exactly for who I am. That he understands who I am, that he knows who I am, and yet still loves me. We're all skeptical in some way. Now the danger, see skepticism is good, but the danger of skepticism is we often stay at skeptic and never arrive at truth. So we just hang on to that skepticism. Either, like I said, we're afraid to ask those questions for fear of where those questions might lead us. Like what if we don't find a suitable answer? Then what? I mean, my whole family has grown up in this. What if, what if this doesn't, what if I, well, I mean, what if I'm opening the, the box to a lot more questions? Or maybe we stay at skeptic because we're never allowed to ask questions. Or maybe we stay at a skeptic because we're more comfortable asking question after question. No matter what the answer is, we just keep asking the question because we're more comfortable asking the question than actually reaching an answer. Because once you find an answer, then you have to make a decision, Right? Here's the thing, the same fear that keeps us from asking questions really is the same fear that keeps us from arriving at answers. If you boil it all down, it's the same fear. Fear of what you're going to find. So the same fear that keeps us from asking questions, it's the same fear that keeps us from actually arriving at an answer to those questions. And so tonight, I want to look at a, a recorded event by, written by an ancient man. He, he, he was ancient when he wrote this, and it was 2,000 years ago, so he's also just ancient. John. We call him the apostle or the disciple John. This is Jesus' best friend. This is the guy who, from the very beginning, Jesus said, hey, I'm, I'm doing a new thing, and John said, I want to be a part of that. I want to I follow you. And so from the very beginning of Jesus' career, John is there. And he's there all the way through the end. In fact, when Jesus is on the cross, John is standing there next to Jesus' mom, Mary. Maybe you've heard of her. Christmas is coming, okay? Get your shopping done early. So Jesus is on the cross, and he looks at John, and he looks at Mary and says, John, take care of my mom. That's John. That's the guy whose account we're about to read, an eyewitness account of Jesus' life. And near the beginning of Jesus' career, a skeptic comes and talks to Jesus, actually has questions for Jesus, and John records it in uh, what we call John 3, verse 1 through 17. If you have a Bible or a New Testament, you can turn there. If not, everything's going to be on the screen for you. And so, actually, what I want to do, I just want to kind of read the first verse and set, set the scene here. So here's, here's our skeptic. Now, there is a Pharisee, we'll talk about that in a second, a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So Nicodemus is this skeptic who's coming to Jesus with a whole bunch of questions. He's a Pharisee. Maybe you've heard that term before. The Pharisees were a group of religious leaders in Jesus' day, and they, were, they practiced strict observance to Jewish laws. And they taught other people, if you want God to like you, you need to strictly follow the laws in the Torah, or what we call the Old Testament, or the Jewish Scriptures. In fact, they were so strict that they made up their own rules in order to make sure they didn't break the rules in the Torah. It's like all these different things you could do on the Sabbath, on the holy day, and things you couldn't do, and like how many eggs you could break to make breakfast, but is that really work, and all that. They made so many different rules because they believed that being holy was about strict observance of the law. So that's Nicodemus. But Nicodemus is no normal Pharisee. Right? He's like the elite. He's the elite of the elite. He's, rid, he's, he's risen through the ranks of the Pharisees. And so he's actually seen as Israel's authority on all things religious. He's part of the upper class. He's rich. He's influential. In fact, he's so influential, he's a member of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin. Whoever your pastor was when you were growing up, that's how you say it. 
Sanhedrin. Think of it, when you think about the Sanhedrin, think of this. It's Congress, the Supreme Court, and the Vatican all tied into one group. That is the Sanhedrin for the ancient, ancient Jews. It's Congress, the Supreme Court, and the Vatican. They, say, they make the laws, they judge you if you broke the laws, and they say this is how you get to God through these laws. They're all about the laws. And so that is Nicodemus. He is like this upper religious ruling dude. And so the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, have started hearing about this, this peasant preacher named Jesus of Nazareth. They'd heard that he'd started getting followers. They'd heard that he's, he's been teaching differently than all the other rabbis taught. You know, he taught with authority. He said, you know, you've heard it said, you, you read it in, in Moses' law that you guys study, you've heard it said, but I say. You heard that Moses said, do not, you shall not murder, right? One of the Ten Commandments. You've heard that, but I say, if you, look, if you have hate in your heart for your brother, you've committed murder. Like, Jesus is superseding his teaching over Moses' law. Like, that's a big deal for, for these Jewish rulers. Takes a step further. He starts healing people. And not just, you know, like, hey, you have sniffles. Here's an essential oil. Now you feel better, right? He's actually like, <laughs> it works, by the way. But, <laughs> like, this, this guy gets lowered through the roof because the house is so full when Jesus is teaching. Gets lowered through the roof because he can't walk, and his friends lower him down. And Jesus is like, hey, dude, your sins are forgiven. We're going to get that into a second. And then he says, stand up and walk. And the guy stands up and walks out of the house. And he's like, holy cow. I mean, holy son of God. Like, what just happened? He starts healing people. And he starts healing them on Saturday, which you don't think is a big deal because you're not Jewish. That's a big deal. He's doing work. He's breaking more than a few eggs. He's healing people. And so the, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, start taking notice. People start saying, maybe this is the anointed one. Maybe this is the one that's going to overthrow Rome. Now, if you're a ruling Jew at the time, you don't want to rock the boat with Rome. Because when Rome comes down on a group of people, who do they come down on? The leaders. So they're trying to keep the peace. Then Jesus claims he can forgive sin, like I said. That's something that every Jew knew was only for God. So Jesus is saying, what I'm teaching is better than what Moses says, and I'm taking on the role of God by forgiving sins. And so Nicodemus, being the guy that he is, he has to go see this for himself. He is a bit skeptical about all these claims of Jesus. He says, hey, you know, well, we'll, we'll get to it. But he's skeptical, and here's what we're going to see. We're going to see Jesus accept this guy, this skeptic. And what we're going to learn is acceptance gives skepticism an opportunity to find answers. True acceptance allows space gives the opportunity to ask, allows, gives skepticism an opportunity to actually find answers. And so let's go through this, this conversation of Nicodemus and Jesus. It gets weird. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Verse 2. He, Nicodemus, came to Jesus at night. And there's all these things on night and why he went at night. Mostly probably because it was nighttime. Jesus wasn't working right now. He wasn't surrounded by crowds. And maybe he didn't want to give legitimacy to Jesus just yet, because if everybody sees Nicodemus go, well then, you know. Anyway, so he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. He says, Rabbi, teacher, you know, you're obviously a good teacher. He gives him respect. He's not just buttering him up. He's, he's, being, he's being sincere. There's something about you. Right? you what you teach, yes, it's, it's a little ex, it's extreme, but we can't, we can't argue with it. It's right. You're obviously a good teacher. We've seen that you do amazing things. And then Jesus interrupts him. He's not like, hey, thanks. How'd you like, how'd you like that one where you know that, that water, that wine thing? Did you hear about that? You thirsty? Because I've got, I've, it's, it's brand new, but it tastes like it's aged. So he doesn't do that. He doesn't like soak it in. He interrupts him in Jesus' fashion. Read this. 
Jesus replied. So Nicodemus said, hey, you know, you're, you're a good teacher. You're doing amazing things. You're from God. And Jesus says, very truly I tell you, which when Jesus says very truly, it means listen. I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That's weird, guys. Nicodemus hadn't asked a question yet. Jesus just spouts off with this thing. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. He hasn't asked him a question yet. He brings up this, like, I know we're Americans, and we kind of grew up with churchy stuff around us, but that whole born again thing, that's out of nowhere. <laughs> but here's why. Jesus goes straight to the real issue. He doesn't mess around. He goes to Nicodemus' real question, his personal question. So Nicodemus' real question is this, I've seen the things you do, and I think you might be from God. I mean, nobody can do these types of things if they're not from God. But are you, I mean, you're forgiving sin like you are God, and people are saying that you're, you're the promised Messiah, the Savior. I'm skeptical. I'm not sure about that. I'm here to see it for myself. And here's, here's what we see in that. Jesus accepts every skeptic as an individual. See, Nicodemus wanted to go through the formalities of meeting with a rabbi and going through all these different, you know, um, polite steps. And Jesus goes straight to what Nicodemus is thinking in his heart. Jesus accepts every skeptic as an individual. No canned answers. No, like, oh, you just have to believe more. He actually sees each skeptic as a person worthy of value and honor. And he says, look, you're thinking about the laws and the rules and, you know, the, the old Jewish scriptures. This whole thing that you're, you're witnessing, that you're kind of seeing a glimpse of, this is so much bigger and better than you think. See, what I'm doing is not about your laws. It's not about your ceremonies and your rituals. And it's not about building a Jewish government or kingdom that a lot of people thought the Messiah would build and kick Rome out. And he says, to see God's kingdom... To see God working in the world, someone has to be born again. Or other translations say, born from above. It says, you'll never find a satisfying answer until you are born of the Spirit. And we'll get to that in a second. Basically, it's, it's this. In our, in, our, in our words, it would be, you can't see spiritual truth through physical eyes. See, you're trying to look for proof that I'm who I'm saying I am, that I'm actually the Messiah, the chosen one. But you're looking at it through the wrong eyes. You're looking for spiritual truth through physical eyes. See, what I'm doing is not about being Jewish, which was a big deal for Nicodemus and his friends. It's not about your behavior. This kingdom of God is about a radical inner rebirth. It's about having a, a whole new life given to you from God, from above. Now, this crazy answer that just comes out of nowhere does not fit with inside Nicodemus's framework or how he understands the world. It makes no sense to him. See, he understood tangible, measurable religion. You go, you go to the temple, you offer your sacrifice on this day, you offer this sacrifice, that sacrifice, that sacrifice, you read the Torah, you, you hang out with people who read the Torah, you don't hang out with anybody who doesn't. You, know, the, you could measure how holy you were. That's what Nicodemus was used to. Following rules, keeping people in certain categories, you know, accepted or sinner. See, Jew, being a Jew, obeying the law, Good. That was Nicodemus' framework. Being a Jew, obeying the rules, you're good. Being a Gentile or a sinner, somebody kicked out of the synagogue, we'll talk about that next week. Being a rule breaker, bad. That was his framework. That's how he saw the world. So he's totally confused. And so, verse 4, which I think might have been a joke, and they both had a good laugh. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. You know, you read the Bible and you're like, okay, he's asking a simple... That's hilarious. Right? Jesus said you have to be born again. Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? You can't do that. And they both chuckle and move on. 
See, he says, no, that's not what I came here to talk about. I came to, you know, make sure you're cool, but I'll bite. What are you talking about? And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Jesus saying, look, the truth that you're looking for lies outside your, frame, your usual framework of looking at these things. You're trying to fit all of this that I'm teaching and all this that I'm doing into your preconceived ideas. You're trying to understand the spiritual world in physical terms, right? See, flesh gives birth to flesh. You'll, you'll understand worldly stuff if you use worldly categories and use your eyes and that type of stuff. But we're talking about spiritual things. You need to have spiritual eyes. You need your spiritual senses awakened. You can't measure it. You can't categorize it, and you definitely can't control it. And so he, Jesus gives an example of cause and effect. He says, you know, you say you have seen what I do, Nicodemus. And so you conclude, I must be from God. Right? You've, seen, you've seen people walk. You've seen you know, some sweet wine be made. You've seen all my teaching and how people are just grab onto it, and it's changing their life. So you think I, you, you see all that. So you conclude I must be from God. But the Spirit of God is the cause you need in order to actually see and enter the kingdom of God, for you to be a part of this, for you to see it with your own eyes as you, a skeptic, want to see. So he gives them an, an example. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound? You cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. This is before Doppler and all that kind of stuff. Okay? So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So he's speaking in ways Nicodemus can understand. You, you can't see the wind, but you know it's there because you feel it and you see its effects. Right? The fact that leaves are moving is evidence that leads us to the truth that air is moving. Right? There's something pushing those leaves. You can't see it, but you choose to believe the truth that there's air moving, pushing those leaves. We call it wind. But since you can't really see the wind, you need to be, we need to open our eyes and minds in order to believe it's really there. See, I, I'm not a meteorologist. I'm not a person who studies wind, whatever that science word is. But I believe that it's not little fairies pushing those leaves, Right? I think most of you do as well. Right? I would be skeptical if you said there's little fairies pushing the leaves. I've opened my eyes to the possibility that there's molecules that I can't see that are pushing and moving and air currents and pressure and all that kind of stuff that I don't understand and don't need to understand. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is the same way. It's invisible. It's invisible until you open your eyes and consider the evidence around you. It's there, it's working all around you, but you have to be willing to look for it. You have to be willing to accept what you find. You can't always measure it, you can't put it in categories, and you can't chart how God works. But it doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean it's not real. And it often has nothing to do with what you see on the outside. It definitely has nothing to do with religious rules being checked off, Nicodemus that you're so used to judging the world through. And so Nicodemus, kind of having his mind blown, having these categories thrown at him that he's never really thought through before, I think he asks a legitimate and honest question. I think it's a question every thinker and every skeptic still asks, and it's this. How can this be? How is this even possible that there's there's this kingdom that has nothing to do with rules, this kingdom of God that has nothing to do with this, the temple, has nothing to do with sacrifices, has nothing to do with, with keeping the Torah. How can this be? How is there a spiritual change that has nothing to do with all of this that I've been raised to believe? Jesus answers them. You're Israel's teacher. You're like the dude. You are the leader of, of, of Israel. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I don't think he's mocking him. He's saying, 
Nicodemus, you are a deep thinker. If there is a thinker in Israel, it is you. If there is somebody who needs proof, it is you. Get out of your usual framework. Get out of your usual framework of the usual answers and usual ways of thinking. You're stuck in what you think things have to be. You're stuck in your own categories. But don't give up. Keep digging. Keep your mind open to the possibility that there is more than you know. And he goes on. Very truly I tell you. Jesus really wanted people to know that he was being truthful. Very truly I tell you. We speak of what we know. And we is probably him and John the Baptist who we talked about last week. And we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things. And you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Nicodemus, we've seen this. We've, we've, we've experienced this. Your eyes aren't there yet. I know what I'm talking about. Trust me. It's deeper than you think it is, and it's better than you think it is. I've tried to explain it to you in a way that makes sense to you, but th- this is, it's bigger. Verse 13. He says, no one has ever gone into heaven. Like, how are you going to understand all these heavenly things, all these things about God's kingdom? No one's gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, which is one of Jesus' favorite names for himself. Okay, things are getting crazy in this conversation for Nicodemus. He is incredibly uncomfortable. Jesus is not just claiming to be sent by God, like to be God's chosen one. He is actually claiming to have come down from heaven. To have been at God's throne. To have been with God face to face. To actually have come down. Be basically God in a bod. Think about it. Jesus is either crazy or he really is the one. Now, Nicodemus sticks around, which... I think if it were you and me and we're having this conversation at night, nobody is around, and you're with this guy who starts giving weird answers, and then he says, oh, and by the way, I've been sent down from heaven. It's dark. I would leave. All right? In fact, I give you permission. If somebody says that to you in a, in a dark area, just leave. But Nicodemus doesn't. He sticks around. He gives Jesus a, a chance to get to his main point in terms and we're going to see this in a second, in terms Nicodemus can understand. See, what we're going to see, what we're going to see Jesus do here is Jesus speaks to us in our own language. Jesus speaks to us in our own language. He sees us as individuals worthy of value and honor. He doesn't just give everybody the same answer because not everybody works the same way. He doesn't work in people's lives the same way every single time because we are all individuals. You know how he knows that? Because he made you an individual. He loves you as an individual. He's given you those questions and that mind that has to find the right answer and seek through it and look at all the, all the facts. Jesus, speak to us in our own language. See, my language is maybe you've guessed if you've been here a few times, is not math, it's not science, but you know the way that I feel like God speaks to me? And I'm not gonna get all hooey-gooey about it. But when I see God's truth, it's usually through humor, which I know is weird to you like math people who are like, Ha, 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 I heard a knock-knock joke. You're not funny, okay? You're math. Stick with it. But God is hilarious. He made you. But that's how he speaks. I feel like that's kind of how he shows himself to me. The first time I felt like God really knew me and accepted me, it was through humor. It was through something funny that happened. And I'm like, God, you you made, that's hilarious. He's like, yeah, I know. You're finally catching on. Good. And so God speaks to us in our own language. And for Nicodemus, it wasn't humor and it wasn't math. It was Jewish history. So here's how God explains, or how Jesus, same thing, explains himself to Nicodemus. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, which needed no explanation for Nicodemus, who had memorized all of the Jewish scriptures, so the Son of Man, myself, must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And that makes perfect sense to you because you're all like Jewish history like experts, right? So basically, when uh, the Jewish nation under Moses had left Egypt and they're in the wilderness, 
Well, they're in the desert. There's poisonous snakes in the desert. People are getting bit. People are dying. And God says, hey, Moses, make this bronze staff with a snake on it. And when people get bit by a poisonous snake, instead of dying, they'll look at the snake and they'll be healed, which makes perfect scientific sense, right? Now, we think, oh, okay, well, they were superstitious. They were ancient, so that made sense for them. No, it didn't. That doesn't make any sense. Right? Why would looking at a bronze snake keep the poison from entering my veins and stopping my heart in a very painful way? It wouldn't. Normally. But they had to trust that it would. And Jesus is saying, look, that didn't make sense to them. It still doesn't make sense. There's no scientific reason why looking at a bronze snake would save you from a snake bite. But it did. And it was all about trust. They had to trust that this was how they would be saved. And it's the same way with me. I am going to be lifted up. And it won't always make perfect sense about how me being, being put to death on a cross and rising again will give you a right relationship with God. I mean, there, it does make sense, but there's, there's just parts of it that we might not fully understand until we can ask God face to face. He says, it's just like that, that everyone who believes doesn't follow the rules, doesn't memorize the Torah, doesn't go to the synagogue, but everyone who believes or trusts, chooses to trust, may have eternal life in him, in me. It's not a formula. It's not a behavioral program. It's trust. I'm offering you better than you think it is. Offering you more than you thought you could have. It's all about trust. And then Jesus says the verse that every football player loves, every football fan, for John 3.16. For God so loved all the church people, for God so loved everyone who obeys, everyone who's cleaned up their act. No, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, you evil sinners. He didn't send, Jesus didn't come to condemn us, say who's in and who's out and how evil you are, but to save the world through him. St. Nicodemus it's not about a, a political or military savior. It's about the forgiveness of sins, a right relationship with God. And it's not just for Jews, it's for the whole world. And it's not about measurable rules, it's about trust. It's not knowing everything, not having it all figured out in a systematic formula. It's simply about trusting. And it's not blind faith, but it's skepticism that has landed on an answer. And Jesus says, and that answer is me. See, Jesus said he is the key to eternal life. He is the key. That's why when Jesus was dead before the resurrection, there was nobody saying, hey, okay, Jesus is dead. Let's write down everything he said, and we'll start this, this philosophy about, you know, being, following what Jesus. It wasn't about what Jesus had taught. See, the reason everybody ran away and scattered and there was no plan to start a new thing is because Jesus had based everything he said on himself. And he said, I am the way to eternal life. Not believing this, not, I mean, believing in me. Not, not, not following the rules and not, not making the sacrifices. It's all on him. Jesus said he's the key to eternal life. And so it was this religious leader, this guy who taught all of Israel God's laws, was he con convinced that night? The skeptic, was he convinced in one conversation with Jesus? No, he wasn't. Not yet, and I think Jesus was very patient. He's patient with all of us. See, like most honest skeptics, Nicodemus needed time to think through these new ideas. This was a new thing. He had to create new frameworks of thinking, but he chewed on it. And he watched Jesus, and he kept searching. He didn't give up. He was willing to follow where his questions and maybe their scary answers led. See, this isn't the last we hear about Nicodemus in John's, John's eyewitness account of Jesus. In fact, at one point, the Pharisees, Nicodemus' friends, want to arrest Jesus. They want to kill Jesus, which they end up doing. But before they actually succeed... They have this meaning like, hey, we need to arrest Jesus. We need to kill him. He's, you know, he's causing all these problems. He's a troublemaker. And so Nicodemus steps in. And we, we, John actually records it for us. Nicodemus, this is John 7, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was the one of their own number, asked, 
Does our law condemn a man, Nicodemus is thinking, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And they replied, the the other Pharisees replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You don't know what you're talking about. And you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Because in the Jewish scriptures, it said the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. They hadn't asked Jesus where he was born yet. So Nicodemus steps in, protects this man who had accepted him, and he gets mocked severely. Like, that's for, a, for the scholar of that day to say, look into it, meaning you don't know what you're talking, you haven't studied, you're not as smart as us. He gets mocked. His, see, his friends don't seem as accepting of skepticism and, and free thinking as Jesus was. And then, after Jesus' crucifixion, we see Nicodemus one more time. Later, this is after Jesus was killed on the cross. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate, the Roman governor, for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Something profound had happened to Nicodemus. I think he had thought through what this accepting man had said, and he saw something different in him. He came to respect Jesus enough to be willing to be associated with him in his death. He's not calling himself a Jesus follower. He he respected him, and he said, I want to help bury this guy. But let's ask, as honest skeptics, let's ask a few more questions. Let's keep digging. Nicodemus is one of the few people named in John's gospel. There's, there's names throughout John's gospel, and there's people whose stories are about that don't have their names named. Now, when an ancient source named somebody in their historical account, there was a reason they gave them a name. It's the writer's way of saying, hey, y'all know Nicodemus, remember him? Everything I'm writing, you can go ask him to verify it. This is somebody I talked to and got information from. That's why he has his name in this account. Go ask him if this is what happened. See, think about it. How did John get the details of the conversation between the Pharisees? Where Nicodemus stood up for Jesus and they said, go look into it. Does the prophet come from Galilee? How did John know that? He wasn't there. But Nicodemus was. And how about those details of the myrrh and the aloes, and how much they weighed to the pound. Where'd John get that? He didn't carry that. You know who carried that? He's like, man, that was heavy. We, like, we wrapped this dude up. Like, I put the myrrh and the aloes on his dead body. I was there. He was wrapped up in the, uh, the way that we wrap our dead bodies, where nobody can get out, rodents and stuff can't get in. I was the one who wrapped him. John got all that information from Nicodemus. See, the man who was skeptical about Jesus, who heard Jesus say he was the promised Messiah, and then helped prepare his dead body, which basically was proof for everyone that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, becomes one of the witnesses John used as proof for the accuracy of his story in saying that Jesus is God. My best friend was God. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead. Nicodemus, the one who doubted, the one who saw Jesus' dead body, becomes one of the sources to prove that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Why? Because he saw something that didn't fit within his boxes. Jesus died. The, he wrapped him in all these claws and 75 pounds of spices. And then, in three days, that tomb was empty. And all those linens and things that Nicodemus had wrapped on Jesus' body were still there. Except that the, the chest was sunken in. 
They weren't like torn apart. Nothing had torn them apart. Jesus was alive. Jesus had resurrected. In fact, Luke tells us, the, the historian Luke tells us that over 500 people saw Jesus after his resurrection. I really think Nicodemus was one of those. That's why we have his account of his dealings with Jesus. And so you might be in your own way, I think, asking the same questions as Nicodemus. In some way, sure, Jesus was a good teacher and must have, must have done something amazing. I'm not too sure about this being God thing. Right? I'm not even sure there's a God. But, I mean, Jesus was a good teacher. Every historian says there was a Jesus. You know, or maybe I'm not too, I'm pretty skeptical about this forgiveness of sin thing. It seems too easy, right? Too simple. Just trust how does, that, how does that change anything? Besides, people don't rise from the dead. When you're dead, you're dead. How can this be? This belief is based on resurrection from the dead. That doesn't happen. Which to my answer is exactly, that's the point. That's why it's so amazing. Right? That's why we base everything on it. Yeah, but, then, but scientifically, if you're dead, you're dead. You might need a new framework. That might be offensive, and I, I don't apologize, but you might need a new framework. Think about it. If there is a God, if there is, give me that, if there is a God who's all-powerful and all-knowing, don't you think he could pull off raising Jesus from the dead? When you draw a picture of a duck, and you're like, I've never seen a blue duck. I'd like to paint this duck blue. <laughs> and you paint it blue, you painted it blue. Why? Because it's your picture. No, there's no such thing as a blue. You can't do that. Maybe you need a new framework. Now there's a blue duck. People don't rise from the dead. Well, one person did. And that's why it's so amazing. See, we need a new framework. We need a new framework. Maybe there's more than we can physically see. Maybe there's more to this than what we've been allowed to ask. Maybe you're a Jesus follower, but you're a skeptic. Not about the facts and if Jesus existed and all that, but... Maybe you're skeptical that trust is really enough. And maybe I would say, you know, if, if you died today and you, and you went to heaven and God said, why should I let you in? And what would you say? And you say, well, Jesus died for my sins. I trust that. Maybe you know the answer. But in your heart, you're skeptical because could God really accept you? Could he really forgive what you did? Could he, could he really love you? Maybe you feel like you have to do more because trust isn't enough. You know, give me a list of rules so I can measure how I'm doing. But this whole trust thing, I'm a little skeptical about that. You need a new framework. Jesus welcomes and accepts all skeptics. Are you skeptical? Then you are accepted. And you are invited to ask your questions. And as you're asking your questions, I want to give you just some quick advice. As you're asking questions, ask new questions. Ask new questions. Don't ask the same question over and over, looking for a different answer. Do some research. Ask new questions by doing some new research. I gave you a list of books that I think are amazing. The one I'm in right now, I'm, I'm working through it, and it's blowing my mind, is Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter J. Williams. It's, it's small. You'll be able to read it. All of you. I can read it, you can read it. Can we trust the Gospels? It'll blow your mind. The Problem of God, we did a series called So What About, based on that book. And then The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. If you have questions, if you are skeptical about Jesus and Christianity, those are your books. Ask some new questions. Maybe your friend invited you here. Ask them about their experience with Jesus, their eyewitness experience. Maybe take, take a chance and ask God to show you that he's real in your own way in the way that he knows you need to see. Ask him to show you he's real. And Jesus follower, if you're skeptical that trust is enough, ask new questions. Ask questions like, well, if, if I have to be good enough for God, then how good is good enough? What's the, what's the standard? Or, you know, which sins was Jesus' death not good enough for? That's a good question to ask when you're not trusting trust. At what point does eternal life end? Jesus says, if, if, if you believe in me, you have, you have right now eternal, never-ending life. So that thing you did after you said, Jesus, I want to follow you, that you think Jesus doesn't love you for anymore, he gave you eternal, unending life. You can't ruin it. 
So ask new questions and choose to trust the answers you find. Choose to trust the answers you find, even if they weren't the ones you were expecting. I mean, what if there is a God who accepts you? What if it is all true? What if trust really is enough? What if God isn't afraid or angry at your questions and your skepticism? What if he wants you to dig deeper so you can grow closer? What if you had the courage to ask new questions and the courage to accept the answers you find? So ask, dig, and then decide. And let your kids ask questions too. Let them ask questions. In fact, if they're not asking you questions, ask them the questions you're chewing on. Why do you think God allows tsunamis? Start asking them now, and then work through it together. If you're stumped and there's, you can't find resources, that's why we have the so what about questions on the connect cards. We would love to walk through that with you. Here's why skepticism is so important, because skepticism can lead to truth worth trusting. If you're willing to ask new questions and accept the answers, skepticism can lead to truth worth trusting. Truth that you found in your own way that makes sense to you, that nobody spoon-fed you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us as individuals, for accepting us as individuals, for accepting our questions, for accepting our doubts, for being patient with us. Pray that you give us the courage this week to ask new questions, to dig deeper, maybe to, to dig into those, those closets of questions and doubts that we've been afraid to explore. Show us your answers. Show us who you are. Walk with us on this journey as we discover more about you and your love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I hope you guys have a great week. I hope you ask some great questions. I hope you find some framework to work through those answers. And we will see you next week. Don't forget to invite a friend or three.